Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Coffee Talks with Mike. Glad you're here. I am not in a good mood today because I went to go get my hair cut and beard trimmed before I went on vacation this week. And unfortunately, they trimmed my beard so, so low, which, you know, I guess that's fine since it's summer and it's going to be hot. But now I just feel naked, which is never fun. But It is what it is, so hopefully you all can uh, get a chuckle out of the fact that I'm walking around feeling like a stranger to myself right now, because I don't think I've gone beardless in three years minimum, Uh, and I do still have like scruff, but it, it is low, low. Like when my beard grows out, it's pretty red, but when it's low, it is that shiny blonde, Um, so you know. Hopefully none of you get to see me over the next two weeks because uh, I feel like an imposter of myself. So that's my mic update. But as I said, I'm going to be going on vacation. So I'm going to have two episodes recorded, uh, one that you're listening to now and one I'm recording the same day, but it'll go out next week. All of it's going to come from Letters to Malcolm from our buddy Clive Staples Lewis. Um, And... uh, the reason being is I really just need to finish rereading this book because I've been slacking a little bit in the book reading department. I've been reading some other stuff, but I'm a perfectionist. I want to read my you know, uh, 60 books a year. So I need to start cruising on that. I am well behind that, um, that goal at the moment. So I'm going to knock this out. Uh, not to rush through episodes, of course. I want you guys to get the best uh, that we have to offer here at Coffee Talks with Mike, but uh, that's the plan. So today we're going to go to uh, chapters seven and eight. Now, the reality is that this episode and the next episode will be pretty related to one another in regards to the content. Um, it's kind of a continuous thought about these aspects of prayer. Um, again, there aren't chapter names in Letters to Malcolm, so I have been naming each of those chapters for myself, and I'll, I'll share that with you. So chapter seven, I uh, titled Petitionary Prayer and Determinism. So he's talking about petitionary prayer, the idea that we ask God, we make petitions to God for something. And there's a lot of debate theologically about how this works. Right? What is the practical stuff that goes into a petition to God? Like, can we engineer a particular outcome because we asked God to do something and then God responded and did that thing? So, um, I'm going to read a few lines here. Again, this is a fictional conversation Lewis is having having over letters with a friend. Um, so he says, uh, "In your last letter, if you meant that we can scrap the whole idea of petitionary prayer." Um, and confine ourselves to the acts of penitence and adoration, I disagree with you. It may be true that Christianity would be intellectually a far easier religion if it told us to do this, Uh, but essentially uh, there are too many examples in scripture that this is not the case. Um, He says, the most unblushingly petitionary prayers are recommended to us both by precept and example. Our Lord in Gethsemane made a petitionary prayer, and he did not get what he asked for. That's key. Um, So here's an example he gives. He says, you'll remind me uh, that Jesus asked with reservation, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. 
This makes an enormous difference. But the difference which it precisely does not make is that of removing the prayer's petitionary character. So again, I know Lewis can be a little verbose. He's saying, yes, Jesus makes a petition of God the Father in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. When he says, nevertheless, thy will be done, he's, that doesn't undo the request. In fact, it, in fact, it amplifies it. And he gives an example. He says, when Bill, on famous occasion, asks us to give him 100 pounds, he said, if you are sure you can spare it, and I shall quite understand if you'd rather not give it to me. This made his request very different from the nagging or even threatening request, which a different sort of person might have made, but it was still a request. The servant is not greater and must not be more high-minded than the master. Whatever the theoretical difficulties are, we must continue to make requests to God. So Lewis's point is this, uh, we should be making requests to God. Again, the theological argument that many make, and he'll address in this chapter and in the following, um, is that our prayers don't necessarily change anything because God is unchangeable, that God has already determined what God is going to do. And so why would you make requests? Like we should only be making prayers of penitence or confession and prayers of adoration or thankfulness. But the petitions are so important because it reveals our faith and our trust in God but it also reveals um, our willingness to submit ourselves to God's will. So the idea that, well, we shouldn't make petitions or requests to God because God's already going to do what God wants. Uh, it's like a cynical um, spiral that says, well, what's the point in doing anything in your life? Uh, because you already know that something's going to happen eventually. So what would you making any action have to do with anything. But the act of asking itself is part of what changes us and part of the spiritual value. It's not just about getting something out of it, uh, which he'll address more directly later. He goes on a little bit um, and he talks about like the different responses to this, to this kind of thing. But he talks about determinism. He says, you know, determinism uh, whether under that name or another name, seems to be some kind of implicit scientific view of the world. And what's he mean? He says, determinism doesn't deny that there's an existing human behavior. Uh, it rejects the spontaneous conviction that our behavior has its ultimate origin in ourselves. What I call my act is the conduit pipe through which a torrent of universal processes pass and was bound to pass at a particular time and place. Determinism basically is saying that everything you think you do on your own, it's already been determined. It's already been laid out. It's already out of your control. So you're just on autopilot. You think you're doing stuff of your own accord, but actually it's all part of this master uh, plan is one word, but more concoction or process. Um, and he goes... Uh, more with this uh, analogy, but he says, ultimately, this views ourselves as a conductor, not a source. He says, I never make an original contribution to the world process. I move with that process, not even as a floating log moves on a river, but as a particular pint of water uh, itself moves. But even those who believe this kind of determinism will, like anyone else, ask you to hand them the salt. 
Lewis's point is saying that, yeah, like even if you kind of succumb to this kind of idea that like everything is out of your control and everything's already been decided and yada, 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 we still live our lives making requests to one another, making plans for the future. And so we see that practically it doesn't really change the way that we actually try to live. We still have to trust one another. We still have to 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 plan out what our next steps are, whether it's personal development or getting married or getting a new job. Like we don't just go, well, I'll wake up one day and the right job will come to me. You still have to show up for work. You still have to plan to get to work that day. So even if this theoretical idea of determinism is true, it doesn't change the fact that you have to actively choose to engage in these practices in your lives. And so Lewis is saying, oh, this really doesn't help us. He says, if a strict determinist believed in God, and I think he might, petitionary prayer would be no more irrational to him than to anyone else. Um, and so he says, like, th- this is obviously not helpful. So he goes on to another example. And he says, uh, like, there's this other argument that's put up and not accepted by many, but um, it says, if a person's freedom is to be of any value, if they're to have any power of planning or adapting means to ends, he must live in a predictable world. But if God alters the course of events in answer to someone's prayer, such as the example of a farmer praying for rain, but you're going on vacation to the beach and you don't want there to be rain. He says, but if God alters the course of events in answer to prayer, then the world would be unpredictable. Therefore, if people are to be effectively free, God must in this respect be unfree. Meaning if we have the freedom to ask and to actually change God, then God becomes uh, the, the patient or the agent for us by which we are making things happen. So God is not free in that sense. And then the world is no longer functioning with any kind of uh, consistency, but rather just by the whims of whichever prayers God is answering that week, which again brings up the theological undergirding of this entire line of thinking, right? How much do our prayers change things? Not necessarily God, like that's another question that we'll get to, but change reality, right? Prayer, prayer about a, a medical diagnosis, prayer about the weather, prayer about safe travels. How do these things actually change things? I knew someone in college that always prayed for an empty parking spot. And she was like convinced that like God would make that parking spot appear for her because of this consistent prayer. Um, And there is a logical breakdown there at some point. The question is like, does your making that request actually change the reality in which you are living? So in that example, did someone magically decide rather than staying for three hours, they're going to get up and leave because they just felt in them like, I need to go to Wawa now or Sheets, I guess, for my Pittsburgh people? Probably not, right? To, to provide that parking space. And in the same way, like we have to think, okay, how much do our prayers change the reality around us? Because obviously we, we engage in prayer for some reason. Not just because we're told to, like we, we think that there's something of value there, but it's the value of getting the thing you ask for, but in the process. Obviously, we think that we want the thing we're asking for. That's why we're asking for it. But Lewis would say, and I would agree with him, but that, that prayer goes deeper than that. 
and that the world is not unpredictable, but it's also not wholly predictable either. Uh, so he goes on. He says, nearly all the things people pray about are unpredictable. The result of a battle or an operation, the losing or the getting of a job, the reciprocation of love. We don't pray about eclipses. But we once did pray about eclipses. Every advance of science makes predictable something that was formerly unpredictable. It's only our ignorance that makes petitionary prayer possible. So would it not be rational to assume that all the events we now pray about are in principle just as predictable, even though we don't know about it yet? So what's he saying? 10,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, people used to pray, oh my goodness, the sun's getting blotted out, but it's really an eclipse. Like, God, let the sun come back. The sun was always going to come back, right? But it's something that was prayed about. Eventually, science caught up to the reality and we were able to observe what was happening. And now we don't pray about solar eclipses or lunar eclipses, right? Lewis is saying that one could make the argument that like everything in the world is necessarily predictable. We just don't know how to discern what's happening yet. So if we think on the meta large scale that like God has already got a master plan for your life and my life and all 7 billion lives on earth, but we just don't know what each step of it is yet. So it feels unpredictable to us, but if we had all the advances of science like we do with eclipses now, then we would perhaps be able to see how predictable everything actually is. Um, this is still problematic, though. He says, this is not uh, an answer to the point I'm making. I'm not now trying to refute determinism. I'm only arguing that a world where the future is unknown cannot be inconsistent with planned and purposeful action, since we are actually planning and purposing in such a world now and have been doing so for thousands of years. He's saying, again, the fact that it's unpredictable reveals the importance of our petitions, of our questions, of our requests. It says also between ourselves, I think this objection involves a false idea of what scientists do. You here are a better judge than I, but I give it for what it may be worth. It is true in one sense that the mark of genuine science is its power to predict. But does that mean that a perfected science or a perfected synthesis of all sciences would be able to write a reliable future. So he's saying science at its peak, you know, human perfection, perfect thinking, like every equation's worked out. Could it predict every single moment of every single life for all of humanity for the rest of time and beyond humanity, I suppose? It says, doesn't science predict a future event only insofar as the event is the instance of some universal law. Think about that. He says, everything that makes the event unique, in other words, everything that makes it a concrete historical event, is deliberately ruled out. Not only as something which science can't or can't yet include, but also as something in which science has no interest. He's saying what science is aiming to do is remove some of these unique markers to find the universal undergirding law or truth that makes it similar, right? But in doing so, we have ruled out all the unique variables about us as individual humans and our particular conglomeration of our lives. 
He says, no one sunrise has ever been exactly like another. Take away from what the sunrise, uh, take away from the sunrise is that in which they defer and what's left will be identical naturally. Uh, but those abstracted identicals, that's what science predicts. And that's not what life is. Life as we live it is not reducible to these kinds of identities. And so we have to recognize that, that the heart, the heart of chapter seven is saying we have to recognize that even if you do think that God has laid out every individual minutia of nanoseconds of your life with a plan, that it's still unpredictable to you. And that because of that, the petitions are deeply important to who we are as human beings. So that first chapter, chapter seven, I named uh, petitionary prayer and determinism Again, the next few chapters really flow right into this. So I'm going to go right into chapter eight here, which I called the passion, which we talk about with the crucifixion of Jesus. That's what the passion kind of entails. And Jesus's anxiety. And so he he goes on uh, in this next uh, chapter. Well, I, I should say um, in the end of the previous chapter, chapter seven, uh, he makes this offhand comment, which is really important. So um, he, he's wrapping it all up, talking about how important petitions are, obviously. And he says, you know, there are unpredictable, unpredictables uh, all throughout human history that history largely depends upon. Uh, and he mentions, you know, Plato or Napoleon or Hitler or Aristotle. He says, uh, 25 years ago, you asked Betty to marry you, this imaginary person. And now, as a result, we have your son, young George. And parenthetically, says, I hope he's gotten over his gastric flu, question mark. So a thousand years, hence, he might have a good many descendants, and only modesty could conceal from you the possibility that might, one of those descendants might have a huge historical impact, such as these other characters. So he's saying... 25 years ago, if you didn't decide to marry Betty, you wouldn't have had that life with her. And also, you would have never had young George, your son. So he makes that offhand comment. I also hope that, you know, his gastric flu is going all right. He starts chapter eight with this transition. And this is, I think, Lewis's attempt to, to show how important this, these ideas being rooted in reality are. We don't want this to just be an exercise in our, in our minds. He says, wow, um, what froth and bubble my last letter must have seemed to you. How pointless it must have seemed to you. Uh, I had hardly posted it when I got Betty's card with the disquieting news about George, turning my jocular reference to his descendants into a stab. At least I suppose it did. And making our whole discussion on prayer seem to you, as it now does to me, utterly unreal. The distance between the abstract question, does God hear petitionary prayers, and the concrete question, will God and can God grant our prayers for George, is apparently infinite. Hear that again. The, the distance between the abstract question, does God hear those petitionary prayers, and the concrete question, will he answer them for George, is apparently infinite. He says, you know, I don't have children, so I don't know what it's like. I can only imagine. 
um, the same way that you couldn't know how I felt. Now, if you don't know Lewis's backstory in real life, his wife passed away. He didn't marry until late in life. He was only married for a few years before she passed away. And he wrote a wonderfully difficult book to read called A Grief Observed about it. Um, and he's referencing that. He says, listen, I don't know what you're going through because I don't have children. Um, and when I was going through stuff with my wife, you wrote to me, quote, I know I'm outside and my voice can hardly reach you. And Lewis says, that was one reason why your letter was more like the real grasp of a hand than any other I got. Uh, the temptation in the face of struggle, suffering, and and darkness. Lewis writes, the temptation is to attempt reassurances, to remind you of how often preliminary diagnoses are wrong, that symptoms are often ambiguous, and that threatened people, you know, sometimes live into a ripe old age. And that's all true, for sure. Those are reality uh, or real facts. But what in that way could I say to you, the things you're not saying to yourself every hour? But you would know my motive in saying that. You'd know how little real scientific candor or knowledge lay behind my words. And if, which God forbid, your suspense ended as terribly as mine did, if your son died the way my wife did, my reassurances would sound like mockeries. So at least I found. He's saying that that's at least how I felt for all the people that said stuff like that to me. He says, the memory of the false hopes was an additional torment. Even now, certain remembered moments of felicitous comfort twist my heart more than the remembered moment of despair. What he's saying is right now, just the memory of all the people that said his wife's going to get better, just have hope, just have faith, that hurts more than losing her in that moment because it was the, this false hope. It was this, uh, just this reassurance that was really for the benefit of the person giving it rather than the person receiving it. And this is going along the lines, not just theologically, but practically on a relational level of when people say things to those suffering, like, well, this is part of God's plan, right? This is why Lewis is following his chapter about determinism with this. It's one thing to pray that God heals someone, changes something, etc. It's another thing to say God will do those things. And then when he doesn't, you have to come up with, with a reason why, with an answer for why God would not do that. Further than that, what makes it harder is coming up for a reason why God didn't do it for you, but did do it for someone else. That doesn't seem very just. In fact, it seems very random. So people start to come up with reasons. Oh, it must have been because I didn't go to church enough, or I didn't go to church with a pure enough heart, or I didn't pray enough, or read my Bible enough, or fill in the blank, right? This is problematic. And Lewis is trying to articulate here some of his own experience in this fictional correspondence. Yes, it's important to talk about the theory behind should we make our petitions to God? What does it actually accomplish? And here's where the rubber meets the road, right? When you're in real situations and your friend is suffering, what is your role in their life? Lewis would argue, as someone that suffered the loss of the person he loved most in his wife, your role is not to come up with what the language he's using, um, uh, pleasant mockeries, reassurances, 
you don't need to give the reassurances. The people already know about those reassurances. They already know about the percentages. They already know they're struggling with the darkness and the reality. And it's not like a, well, a whole look, look at the glass half full. He's saying, no, like look at the reality with them. Again, going up to his letter, he says, his friend wrote to him, I know I'm on the outside. My voice can hardly reach you. When he acknowledged the darkness, that's when Lewis responds, one reason why your letter felt like the real grasp of my hand was because of the, those lines, that you acknowledge the darkness and the, the separation between us and our experience. He says, all may yet be well. This is true. Meanwhile, you have the waiting waiting till the x-rays are developed or till the specialist has completed their observations. And while you wait, you still have to go on living. If only one could go underground and hibernate or sleep it out. Man, I've had some moments in my life where you're just so upset or stressed or tired, exhausted with the situations you find yourself in. You don't even want to like numb your mind by watching TV. You're like, I want to go to sleep. I want to turn my brain off for a little bit. If I can just take a three-hour nap, that's three hours less that I have to think about this situation. Lewis is trying to get to the heart of that feeling in relation to our prayer lives here. Um, so all of this is kind of setting up the reality of our anxieties. So I, I want to read straight again here. He says, then the horrible byproducts of anxiety come the incessant circular movement of the thoughts, even the pagan temptation to keep watch for irrational omens like a shooting star or lightning as you pray. And one prays, but mainly such prayers are themselves a form of anguish. He's saying that in reality, when you're feeling these anxieties, these, these fears about what might happen, uh, your prayers are actually another form of anguish for you because they're reminders of the reality you're living in and they're reminders that you haven't gotten an answer. He says, some people feel guilty about their anxieties and regard them as a defect in their faith. I don't agree at all. I don't either, as Mike, back to Lewis. They are afflictions, not sins. Like all afflictions, they are if we can so take them, our share in the passion of Christ. Every affliction that we experience is a sharing in Christ's affliction in his suffering. He says, for the beginning of the passion, the first move, so to speak, is in Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, a very strange and significant thing seems to have happened. It's clear from many of his sayings that our Lord had long foreseen his death. He knew it was coming. He knew what conduct such as his in a world such as we have made of this must inevitably lead to. But it's clear that this knowledge must somehow have been withdrawn from him before he prayed in Gethsemane. And so he prays. He prays for this cup to pass from him. And Lewis points this out, and I, I never thought about this this way before reading this. I already had this underlined um, from reading this years ago a few times, I still just didn't hit me then the way it does today. He says, Isaac had been spared. He too, at the last moment, he also against all apparent probability. It was not quite impossible and doubtless he had seen other men crucified, 
a sight very unlike most of our religious pictures and images. He's saying that the humanity of Christ in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane was hoping for an outcome like Abraham and Isaac, where Isaac was about to be sacrificed for this greater good, for this reason beyond human comprehension. And at the last moment, God intervenes. And Christ was hoping for the same thing with that prayer. Christ was experiencing such great anxiety in light of what he knew was to come that he asked for the cup to pass. He says, to live in a fully predictable world is not to be human. We can't be human if everything's predictable. He says, we will all try to accept with some sort of submission our afflictions when they actually arrive. But the prayer in Gethsemane shows that the preceding anxiety is equally God's will and equally part of our human destiny. Now, that's a tough idea to wrap your head around. The prayer in Gethsemane shows that the preceding anxiety to the event is equally God's will and equally part of human destiny. The perfect man experienced it. And the servant is not greater than the master. We are Christians, not Stoics. I think what he's getting at there is we're not just experiencing suffering for the sake of experiencing suffering. Something in those experiences, it, it does something to us. It doesn't just like make us better because we're going through it. It's something that makes us join in the perfect experience of Christ. He says, does not every movement in the passion write large, some common element in the sufferings of the human race? First, the prayer of anguish, not granted. Then he turns to his friends, they're asleep, as ours, or we are so often, or busy, or away, or preoccupied. Then he faces the church, the very church he brought into existence, and it condemns him. This is also characteristic. In every church, in every institution, there's something which sooner or later works against the very purpose for which it came into existence. But there seems to be another chance. There's also the state. In this case, the Roman state. Its pretensions are far lower than those of the Jewish church, but for that very reason, it may be free from the local fanaticism. It claims to be just on a rough worldly level. Yes, but only so far as it's consistent with political expediency. But even now, all is not lost. There's still an appeal to the people, the poor and the simple whom he'd blessed, whom he'd healed and fed and taught, to whom he himself belongs, but they became overnight, that's not nothing usual, a murderous rabble shouting for his blood. There's nothing then nothing left but God. And to God, God's last words are, why hast thou forsaken me? Man, that, that's heavy. So go through that again. He's saying that what we see in the passion of Christ is a large uh, common element of the sufferings of all human beings. He says he, he prays out of anguish and his prayer is not answered. He turns to his friends and they're absent. They're asleep. They're preoccupied. They're busy. They're away. He turns to the church and the church condemns him, even though the church was created for this purpose, but it's failed to live up to its purpose. He turns to the state and the state claims to be this, this un, uh, uncorruptible force for justice. 
And yet even that has been corrupted. And then he turns to the people and the people that he helped and they gave everything of himself for. And overnight they turned against him. And then he finally turns to God. The only thing left that could change his outcome and their silence and his response to God's self is why have you forsaken me? Lewis writes, you see how characteristic, how representative it all is. The human situation writ large, these are among the things it means to be human. Every rope breaks when you seize it. Every door is slammed shut as you reach it. To be like the fox at the end of the run, the earth is shaking. It's heavy. But there's something happening here. He says, is it that God himself cannot be human unless God seems to vanish at his greatest need. Think about that. For Jesus to really experience humanity, did he have to experience that, that sensation that God too has abandoned him? Was that part of the plan, Lewis writes? And if so, why? I sometimes wonder if we've even begun to understand what it is, what's involved in the very concept of creation. If God will create, he will make something to be, and yet to be not himself. To be created is, in some sense, to be ejected or separated from God, because you're no longer in the mind, so to speak, of God. You've now been created. You're separated from God in some sense. Can it be that the more perfect the creature is, the further this separation must at some point be pushed? It is saints, not the common people, who experience the dark night. Remember, we've talked about the dark night of the soul before, the, the sensation that God has abandoned them. He's saying it's the people that follow God that experience this, not common people who reject God. It is humans and angels, not beasts, who rebel. Inanimate matter sleeps in the bosom of the Father. The hiddenness of God, perhaps, presses most painfully on those who are in another way nearest to him. And therefore God himself made man. Will of all men be by God most forsaken? Those of us made in the image of God are the ones that feel most left behind by God? Why would that be the case? So Lewis, again, is wrapping up this letter, this hypothetically says, I am to you like one of Job's comforters. Far from lightening the dark valley that you find yourself in right now as your son suffers, I blacken it. And you know why? Your darkness has brought back my own. He's saying, because of your suffering, it's bringing up all the suffering I've been through. And now I feel like I'm just piling on to you. He says, but on second thoughts, I don't regret what I've written. I think it's only in a shared darkness that you and I can really meet at present, shared with one another and what matters most with our master. We are not on an untrodden path. We're on the main road. I love that line. Your darkness has brought back my own, but I don't regret what I've written because it's only in our shared darkness that we could meet right now. And he says, this isn't just shared between us. It's shared between us and Jesus too, because in Jesus's own life, he experienced this darkness too. 
And so as we experience this darkness, as we feel like we're able to connect and share with one another because of it, we can actually connect to Jesus in a fuller way than we did before. Because something about this suffering connects us to the heart of God himself. So certainly in that other letter, we were talking too lightly about these things. One used to be told as a child, think what you're saying, but apparently we also need to be told, think what you're thinking. The stakes have to be raised before we take the game quite seriously. I know this is the opposite of what's often said about the necessity of keeping all emotion out of our intellectual processes. Quote, you can't think straight unless you're cool. But then you can't think deep either without that emotion. I suppose one may, must try every problem in both states. You remember that the ancient Persians debated everything twice, once while they were drunk and once while they were so sober. That's the end of chapter, uh, chapter eight. And I think it, it has to be paired with chapter seven because chapter seven is the intellectual exercise of do our petitionary prayers, do our requests made to God change anything? What's the point? And then the practical reflection on the loss of his wife and the, and the sickness of his friend's son and how that might change everything. And he likens that, connects that to Jesus's own anxieties in his life. Jesus showed us what it meant to be a perfect human. And apparently that included fear and anxiety. That included prayers that we make that don't get answered the way we want them to get answered. And so this chapter to me is like, oh, it's good. Because uh, in the, the last Parker Palmer episode I, I did with you guys, if you haven't listened to that, check it out. But on seasons, he talks about how we learn about how, you know, there, there are, there's more light in summer. There's the least amount of light in winter. If you don't learn how to face that reality, then the natural thing you'll do is try to produce artificial light. But that doesn't actually give you what the sun gives you. You have to have sunlight. You have to have the vitamin D coming in through your pores. Artificial light in your home doesn't do that. And so eventually all it does is it pushes away the symptoms and the problems and tricks you into thinking things are okay until you learn how to live in that darkness. You can't actually experience true light. And in the same way, what Lewis talks about here is being able to meet with his friends emotionally and spiritually in their shared darkness. That's what makes them able to have this conversation right now is not because there's been this regurgitation of all the positive ways that God has a plan and God's going to change it all. You don't have to throw those ideas out, but that's not what is needed in those moments. What's needed is someone that is willing to stand with you in the darkness, the same darkness that Jesus stood in as his friends were asleep and as the church condemned him and as the state abandoned him and as the people he loved turned on him and cried out for murder on a cross, that is darkness. That is suffering. And that is where we meet Jesus sometimes in our darkest moments that shared darkness so that we can meet on the same path forward. And so it, the petitions, regardless of if you think everything in your life has been laid out and determined, they, they change us. They, they move us. They, they empower us. 
And so uh, in the next two chapters, uh, which will be in the next episode or so, um, you, you'll hear this quote. Uh, I'll read it to you here, just one part of it. Um, but to think that our prayers are just causes would suggest that the whole importance of petitionary prayer lays in the achievement of the thing asked for. But really, for our spiritual life as a whole, um, the prayers being considered is what matters more than being granted. Religious people don't talk about the results of prayer, or at least they shouldn't. They talk about prayers being answered and heard. Now, Lewis is playing a semantic game there, but it's for an important reason. And the reason being that the purpose of our prayers, of our petitions, is not to get what we want, but to be honest with God about what we want. Lewis plays this idea out um, in uh, The Magician's Nephew, Chronicles of Narnia. And these kids say, oh, I wish that Aslan, the Christ figure, would have given us food for this long trip. And uh, the, the unicorn, Pegasus, says, did you ask him? They said, no, but shouldn't he already know that? He's like, of course he knows, but I get the sense that he likes to be asked. There's something about the act of asking, not just assuming that things are going to go a certain way because it's already been determined that way, but, but asking. It's an act of trust and recognizing that sometimes we don't get what we want, but the act of asking is part of what changes us, what moves us forward despite darkness. And there are days when we feel like we cannot ask, not because we're ashamed to ask, but because we're so angry, so hurt, so consumed by the darkness that we can't ask. And on those days, I'm reminded of the four friends that lift their paralyzed friend up onto a roof and lower them through a roof to meet Jesus. And Jesus's response is that your faith has made him whole. Their actions on behalf of their friends is what made him whole. The days where you feel paralyzed, literally or figuratively, by the darkness in your life are the days when you most need people that are willing to see you in that darkness and go to God on your behalf. That's what Jesus does for us. That's what the high priest all throughout the Old Testament did for the people. And that's what we have been called into now. The priesthood of all believers is the language of the New Testament. Yeah, there are pastors out there. Yeah, there are people that go through seminary, get ordained, all these things. But we're all called saints. We're all called followers, disciples. There's a priesthood for all of us who call, call ourselves and claim to be believers. And in that sense, we're all called to be those friends that walk with our friends in the lowest of moments and go to God on their behalf. It's not an artificial light. It's something truer than that. True light can face darkness. So those are some thoughts from Letters to Malcolm. We'll follow up with the next two chapters for the next episode, but that's not coming out for another few days. So tune in. I really recommend you get this book. It's 100 pages, 110 pages long. There's some stuff that'll probably go over your head just as it does mine. If you're if you read a book and you understand everything in it, you're not challenging yourself, okay? So pick it up. Easy book. Easy size-wise, and there's just enough nuggets per chapter even if you don't understand 80% of it, 
you'll get one good idea per chapter per week. So how about that? Uh, meet you for the next episode. I'm probably on a beach right now, or at least I hope to be. So take care of yourself and uh, talk again soon.